take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 16. Brother Gary, I am constantly amazed at how this dear brother selects the songs for our worship service every week, how perfectly those songs fit with Psalm 16 as they talk about God's preservation and his being our portion forever. Uh, As believers in Christ, we all love God's word, don't we? It's special to us. All of his word is special. It's it's God breathed. It's his direct revelation to us that we might know him better. And no part of his word is any more true than any other part of his word. So please don't misunderstand me this morning. I don't mean to belittle any of God's word, and I certainly don't want to be blasphemous, but I suspect that most of us, probably all of us, have favorite parts of God's word, uh, some that we return to uh, more than other parts. I was part of a discussion one time in which someone asked, uh, what's your favorite book of the Bible? If you were marooned somewhere and you only had one book of the Bible, what would it be? Uh, That'd be a hard decision. But for me personally, uh, right, right at or near the top would be the book of Psalms. Uh, The Psalms are so varied And they cover so many different topics and they magnify the Lord in so many different ways. And they present our struggles very realistically, I think, and how God cares for us in the midst of those struggles. And so they seem to just draw me, at least naturally, to a closer relationship with God. They just tell us so much about him. Plus, there are 150 of them, so you can read for a long time, and uh, you can find much wisdom and beauty there in the Psalms. And they're rich with solid doctrine. Of course they are, because they're God's Word to us. Today, we want to look only at Psalm 16. It's a short psalm, but it's a very, very rich psalm. Psalm 16, a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad 
And, I, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Could we pray together? Gracious Father, our hearts are glad this morning. Those of us who are here who know you because of what you have done for us. Because you have drawn us into a relationship with you. So we come this morning to worship you. I would ask you, Father, that you would hide me in the shelter of your wings as we sang this morning and that your word would pierce our hearts and draw us ever closer. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As part of the title of Psalm 16, you saw there, says a victim of David. It's an unusual word. It's found in the title of Psalm 16. It's also found in the titles of Psalms 55 through 60. All of those Psalms are attributed to David. The meaning is not completely certain, but it's generally taken to mean a poem or a song having a, a musical character to it. We certainly know David was a musician, among many other things. Some say the word also means uh, profound or precious, even, uh, even golden. And uh, the root uh, comes from a word which means uh, to, to stamp or to engrave. We might ask God this morning that he would engrave in our hearts this precious psalm and make it a part of us. We know that this is a really special psalm because both Peter and Paul quote Psalm 16 uh, in their sermons in Acts. And we'll come to that a little bit later. You see in the first line of the psalm, David cries out to God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What's a refuge? A refuge is a place that can be trusted to provide safety for you. In fact, a couple of other translations of this verse say, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So this morning... We're going to talk about that. That's going to be a theme that we'll dwell on this morning as we go through this psalm. And I hope we can see several ways in which David trusts in God as his own personal refuge and ways in which we can trust God and what it means to trust God. We, all you believers here would say we trust God, but what exactly does that mean? And what are some things we assume if we are trusting in God. David's going to show us some things this morning. And I, I drew a list out of this as I went through this psalm. Probably any one of these things we could dwell on for the entire time this morning. But we don't have time for that. So I, I just want to run you through the list. And you can think more about that list 
when you get home and, and consider more in, in this psalm. Hopefully this psalm will remind us of what trusting in God means to us. We just saw, as we read the first verse, one way in which David trusts in God. He prays to him. It makes sense to go to someone that you trust when you have a problem or a request. So trusting in God means praying to him as the only God who is able to hear and answer your prayer. So David begins his psalm with a prayer. That's always a good place to begin, isn't it? His prayer is directed to the right one, to the only true and living God. There were a lot of worshipers of other gods in David's day, but David prays to the only God, the only real God, the only true God. He prays to him because he's come to know him and he's come to trust him. It's interesting that David, in the first couple of verses here, uses three different names for God. You don't see that as we read the English, but he uses three names. The first name he uses for God is El, E-L, which is a very common name. It's used many, many times in the Bible, and it means the strong or mighty one. Uh, Sometimes it's even translated, that word's translated might or power. So David sees God as the strong and the mighty one who can be trusted to defend his own people. David trusts God as the strong and mighty God in whom he can take refuge. And our God is the strong and mighty God who can handle every problem we have. Every situation in your life, whether it's in your family, on your job, or whether it's in our nation, needs to be taken to our faithful God in prayer as the mighty God who can handle every situation. Second name God uh, that David uses for God here is the old covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, Kids, if you take a look here, you see that that's all in capital letters, L-O-R-D spelled in capital letters. Anytime you see that in the scripture, that means the word that's translated there is Jehovah, the great covenant keeping God. Remember that was the name that God gave to Moses when God, when Moses said, who will I tell the people you are? And God said, I, I am the great, I am. I am the self-existent one. Uh, that word occurs over 7,000 times in the Bible. You see it very, very often. David thinks of Jehovah, his great covenant-keeping God, as the one David can trust because he will keep his promises. That God, the covenant-keeping God, can be trusted to keep his promises. The third name that David uses for God here is Adonai. It's also translated Lord, but you notice it's in uh, lowercase letters. And that word generally means uh, master or a ruler or a king. Um, sometimes it's used for an earthly master or an earthly ruler, but David's talking about God here. And in saying to Jehovah, his covenant keeping God, he is saying, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai. You are my ruler. 
my master, my king. David believes that God can be trusted as his master and his king. So we see that God's only not, not only the strong and the mighty God, who's powerful to help and can be trusted. He's also the great covenant keeping God who never breaks a promise to us. And he's also the one who can be trusted as our ruler or our master to direct every step of our lives. If David is in covenant with God, then God is his savior. But it appears here that David trusts his covenant keeping God as both his savior and his Lord or his master. We believe that trusting God means that he is both savior and Lord. We say something similar to that when we say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He's the one who saves us, and he's the one who is the master of our lives and able to direct every decision. I hope this morning that he's your Savior and Lord. There's been a lot of debate about that in, uh, in recent years, and books have been published about it, many articles. Some say you can have one without the other. You can have God as your Savior, but not necessarily have him as your Lord. I personally believe the Bible is very clear about that. He must be both. They go together. They cannot be separated. Jesus said uh, in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I tell you? And then again in John 14, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If he is our savior, it naturally follows that he has to be our Lord as well. So Jehovah, that great covenant keeping God is the one in whom David places his trust to save him and also be the ruler of his life to direct his life. David trusts in that real God rather than any false God. People who trust in other things, in other gods that are false gods are really trusting in nothing that can truly help. Not long ago, I was sharing the gospel with a young man who listened very patiently to me. And then he rejected my words and he said, that, that's just not for me. He just really didn't need that. He was placing his trust in himself and his own abilities and his own skills. And millions do that around the world. But our abilities and our skills will fail us, folks. We need forgiveness of our sins. Nothing we can do can produce forgiveness of our sins. Only that great covenant keeping God can forgive our sins. David's prayer here to that God is to preserve him. First verse, preserve me, O God. We sang that a few minutes ago. Trusting God means he preserves us. David needs someone that he could trust to preserve him. He didn't trust his own ability 
to preserve himself. We might take uh, preservation several ways. We want to be preserved from harm by being kept safe. And God certainly does that. He preserves us from harm. In Psalm 91, David uh, or God says of his own people, I will protect him because he knows my name. Folks, we probably have no idea how many times and in how many ways God has protected us from harm and we didn't even know it. We also want to be preserved, secondly, against sin. To be able to walk faithfully with our God. He also preserves us from sin. In Psalm 19, the the psalmist prays, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. God is able, beloved, to guard you against sin in your life. And thirdly, we want to be preserved ultimately at our death. And God does that as well. He preserves us a home in heaven with him. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. If you are trusting today in your own strength or your ability or your willpower, anything to preserve you in those ways, whether in your physical safety or to preserve you against sin or to preserve you ultimately at your death, if you're trusting anything else, you are waging a losing battle. Think about it a minute. We might think of preservation in terms of our physical health, our our well-being. But we know that we cannot preserve our lives for a minute. We can't keep our hearts beating one more beat. We can't keep our lungs exchanging oxygen. We can't keep ourselves from harm. We have accidents. We get sick. We are frail creatures. We say, well, we'll exercise. Well, Okay, some exercise and some diet may help us. Paul says bodily exercise is of a little benefit, but only a little. It's good to take care of yourself, but only God can sustain your health. In asking for preservation here, David may mean against outside forces. He may be saying, God, keep me safe from my enemies. David could have looked to his mighty men or to his military strength or his position as king over Israel and the power that he had, all the influence he wielded. But he recognized that all that's fleeting and all that could disappear. Is that not true with our own jobs and families and situations? We have no control over those things, folks. Uh, Deuteronomy tells us that God gives us the power to make wealth. He places his children in certain positions. He blesses them there. All that can be taken away in a moment. Just a quick look at Job's situation ought to remind us of that. But if the Lord's in control and it's his plan and he takes care of us, it only makes sense to place our trust 
in him. Is David in some sort of difficulty or challenging situation here? We don't know. But we know and David knows that he can't preserve himself. He cannot keep himself safe from his enemies. He has to depend on someone else to keep him safe, to preserve him. And it has to be someone with the power to keep him safe. He must take refuge somewhere else besides his own ability or his military power. Beloved, our safety is only in our God. We live in a very dangerous world that's getting dangerous all the time. We see it on the news every evening. There are people who are out to destroy us. And we really have minimal defense against terrorism when you think about it. Whether you're on a sidewalk or at a ball game or a theater or right here in church, we're pretty much defenseless. Despite all our efforts at security, we can make elaborate plans, but our real security is only found in our God. Psalm 4 says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Whether you're concerned about your physical health or your safety from outside forces, our preservation comes from God. Our true safety and preservation is only in our God, and He can be trusted for that. In verse 2, David acknowledges a great difference between himself and his God that requires preservation. He says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David's talking about his own goodness, his own righteousness. And he says his own goodness is nothing apart from God. The Bible does tell us elsewhere too, that there is none good. No, not one. Both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 tells us that God looked down from heaven and he looked across mankind to see if there were any that he could find that were good and he couldn't find one. None. No good. There is no good apart from God. We're told that our righteousness is like filthy rags in his sight. We, like David, have no goodness. There is none in us. Only God is good. Remember when they called Jesus good master and he said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God alone. Of course, he was claiming to be God himself. What he said is true. There's none good except God alone. Being preserved means that it requires God's goodness. He imparts that goodness to us. He declares us righteous when we trust in him. There's that trust again. That's called justification. Placing trust in God means he justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. He imparts to us a goodness that we do not have. But once we get that goodness that God gives us, can we preserve it? Can David preserve his own goodness? Certainly not. And neither can we. 
We need the work of the Spirit of God in our lives every day to preserve our goodness. We do work out our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul tells us. But then he goes right on to say, but it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He promises he will complete the job that he has begun in us. He not only justifies us or declares us righteous, he is in the process of conforming us to the image of God. That's called sanctification. And trusting God means he sanctifies too. That's God's work. So we've seen that we trust God for our physical safety and for preserving our goodness as well, preserving us against sin. The third aspect of our preservation is our ultimate salvation we mentioned a minute ago. And David's going to come to that too toward the end of the psalm. We'll come to that in a few minutes. So far, David's been crying out to God in prayer. That's because of the relationship that he has established with God. But in verse 3, he sort of shifts gears and he brings up the saints in the land. That's because a relationship with God has implications for our relationships with others. Who are the saints in the land? Those are the ones that have placed their trust in God, those who are in fellowship with God with us. David knows that we are to love others, that trusting God means loving others. Jesus commands us to love others just as he loves us. So remember that Jesus taught his disciples to love and serve each other that night when he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. He expressed that love even further by dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sin so that we might be saved. He gave his very life, gave of himself. And he asks us to give of ourselves. I've seen marvelous examples of that kind of love in you as I've seen you love and serve each other in this church. And David expresses his delight in those saints. I have delight in you as I watch how you love and serves each other. David delights in the other saints and he calls them excellent ones. Why does he delight in them? I suspect first of all, because they have placed their trust in God. And that's the most significant bond that we have, is it not? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are bonded together by the Spirit of God in the one body, and we delight in each other. I suspect he also delights in them because they're an encouragement to him as they love him and one another. There are a lot of one another's in scripture. The uh, Chapel Creek uh, care group went through the one another's in scripture not long ago. It was an encouragement to us as we talked about how we are to love one another. As we live out those one another's, we're an encouragement to each other, are we not? You're an encouragement to me as I watch your faith and watch your walk with the Lord. 
Watch your compassion for each other, your help for each other, your love for each other. We need that Christian love and fellowship. We need each other, beloved. Just as David delighted in the saints around him, we delight in each other, don't we? We're glad to be surrounded by believers, especially when things aren't going so well. Look at verse 4, though. David's encouraged by the saints, but there's quite a contrast with unbelievers. Those are the ones who are following after something else, following after other gods. There's no delight in those who are trusting in something else. David says he won't rely on their drink offerings. He won't even mention their names on his lips. They are rejecting finding their security and their safety in the only one in whom there is any security at all. Those who follow after another God really have no God. There is no other God. And David says they have their sorrows multiply. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Seemed the temptation to follow after other gods was always with the children of Israel. And their way was often hard. It hasn't changed much in the 21st century, has it? There are temptations that abound to us every day from every direction. We are bombarded with offerings to follow after other gods, follow other things. We can make, beloved, a God out of work, of family, of health, of sports, money, sex, entertainment, comfort, hobbies, pleasure. The list just goes on and on, doesn't it? We can make a God out of any of those things. David determines he will not follow after any other God. He is living out his trust in God. And trusting in God means turning from all other gods, no matter what the attraction might be. So David is saying something on a deeper level. He's saying instead of following some other God, he says the Lord is his portion. Normally, when we think of having a portion, we might think of having ice cream next door when this service is over. And we'll probably all have uh, more than our portion. Helping our plates, we often do that. We enjoy helping our plates, don't we? And we usually eat our portion until our bodies are satisfied. But David's not thinking about food when he's talking about his portion. On a much deeper deeper level, David says the Lord is his portion. David's finding his real satisfaction someplace else than food. The Lord satisfies his hunger. The Lord satisfies his thirst. God is his portion and his cup, he says. We sang about it a few minutes ago from Psalm 73, which expressed it so well. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
And that's what David's saying here. Instead of trusting in other gods, like the people that David just talked about, David says the Lord is his portion. And he uses an interesting metaphor here. He says the Lord is his cup. The word cup is used a lot of places in scripture, sometimes in tangible ways, like a a cup of wine or maybe the cup that Joseph placed in the sack of one of his brothers. Remember that story? Uh, But it's also used in very abstract ways like it is here to give us a very different thought, to give us a picture. For example, in Psalm 23, which we also just finished, David said, my cup runs over. It's possible David is partly referring to God's provision of his food and his drink. God makes available that to him every day and he does the same for us. We might say the same in our prayer when we pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. We do look to God every day for our sustenance, food and water. As I was in Haiti, as Wes and I went to Haiti back several months ago, I was overwhelmed with gratitude to God for an abundance of daily food and water right out of my own faucet in my own house because I saw multitudes that didn't have even that. And certainly food and water are gracious provisions that God makes for us. And we shouldn't take those for granted. God is the provider of our daily bread. Our cup does run over. But David means a lot more than that. I think David is using the phrase to mean that our God has given him an abundance of blessings besides just food and drink. David has known the blessing of God's protection Even as a boy, when David killed both lions and bears, later on he faced the giant Goliath and he was victorious. God protected him. Later, David fell out of favor with King Saul, remember? And on a couple of occasions, King Saul tried to kill him. But God protected him. David trusted in God. He was a man of war. He could have been killed many times in battle. But God preserved him. In God's timing, he was made king over Israel and God protected him. God blessed him. When David even chose to sin with Bathsheba and then even go so far as to have her husband killed, at his point of repentance, he experienced the gracious forgiveness of God. So as David looks at his life and looks back here and he considers the Lord's goodness, he's motivated to say, my cup runs over. He means that he has experienced such blessing from God that his life overflows with it. Can you say the same thing, beloved? I suspect you can. So we might say that the cup that David's talking about in Psalm 23 and also in Psalm 16 here is a cup of blessing. We might call it the cup of blessing. And that could be partly what he means here. God's provided him and us with an abundance of blessing. 
I hope you're identifying with David as you consider the blessings that God has showered upon you. I hope you're thanking him because trusting in God means thanking him for his abundant blessing. But here in Psalm 16, it seems like it has an additional meaning even beyond those bountiful blessings. Blessings of protection, blessings of provision. David says that the Lord himself is his portion, his lot. Not just all those blessings and the things God is doing for him. God himself is David's portion. The Lord is my portion, he says. He's thinking far beyond protection and provision. David is thinking specifically about God himself. God is his portion, his cup. We've already mentioned Psalm 73, where it says, God is my portion. Psalm 119 says the same thing. The Lord is my portion. That idea goes way back. You remember way back in Numbers when uh, the Lord told Aaron that he'd been selected to take care of the tabernacle and he'd have regular duties there. But he told him he'd have no inheritance in the land because the Lord said to Aaron, I am your portion. So that goes way, way back. More than all the blessings of food and drink and material goods and even family and the blessings of protection, the Lord is our portion. Knowing the Lord is life, beloved. Jesus said, remember in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Beloved, the greatest blessing of all is knowing God himself, having the Lord God as your portion, as your cup. There's no greater blessing than knowing him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our portions at our buffet may satisfy our bodies, but knowing the Lord as your portion satisfies your soul. Lamentations 3 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him, trust in him. When we know the Lord through Jesus Christ himself and hope in him, we are drinking from another cup, the cup of salvation. Psalm 116 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Trusting God means drinking from the cup of salvation. And there's no way to drink of that cup without calling on the name of the Lord for salvation, without the Lord being your portion. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. God has destined us to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul told the Thessalonians. If you are here this morning and you have not called on the name of the Lord for forgiveness of your sin, if you have not called on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and trusted in his salvation, in his 
sacrifice on the cross for your salvation, then you have not drunk of the cup of salvation. Please talk to us about that. If you don't, you will be drinking from another cup. And that is horrifying. It's a cup that Jesus drank from. We don't get to drink from the cup of salvation without great, great cost. In order for us to drink of that cup, the cup of salvation, Jesus had to drink of another cup. Several passages talk about the cup of God's wrath. It was a cup that Jesus knew he had to drink. Remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew his sword and he cut off the high priest's ear. I don't believe for a moment Peter was going for an ear. I think he took a swipe to take off that servant's head and that servant dodged and only lost his ear. Jesus put it back, you know, but he said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Earlier before that in the garden, remember Jesus had prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to drink of that cup. It was the cup of God's wrath. He didn't want his father to turn his back on him. But he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath out of love and obedience so we could drink the cup of salvation. He drank that cup on our behalf so we would never have to drink that cup. Praise God. Trusting in him means you never drink of that cup. Instead, we have the cup of salvation. The cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that those in Christ would never have to drink it. Instead of wrath being our cup, the Lord is our cup. He is our portion. Because of the cup Christ drank, the cup of salvation provides peace with God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who are trusting Christ. Trusting in God means having peace with him, beloved. At the table on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated that last supper with his disciples. Remember that? We continue that every month when we come to the communion table. On that night, Jesus said to his disciples, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. He was offering himself so that we might say with David, the Lord is my cup. We picture that cup of the new covenant every time we celebrate at the communion table. I wish we were doing it this morning. Verses five and six, David uses another metaphor, his, his lot in life, his place, the, the lines drawn for him. In ancient times, they measured property that way. They, they drew out a cord or, or a line to measure property like for an inheritance. And David realizes that the lines that God has drawn for him give him a beautiful 
inheritance. First, there's his life of knowing God. His enemies didn't know God, but David did. He knew God on a personal basis as his shepherd, as his savior, and as his Lord. And if you know God today, if you are here trusting God, it's because he has destined you for that. It's because he has chosen you to reveal himself to you. The the line that he has marked out for your life included coming to him as your savior and included having a personal relationship with him. That line was drawn before you were born, beloved. And in his timing, he gave you a new heart and a new lot in life. Trusting in him means having a personal relationship with him. Secondly, David says his lot was in pleasant places. He was greatly blessed in his life. His cup truly did run over. Sure, David had many challenges in his life, but he was king over all Israel. He had mighty men who followed after him. He had a whole nation that looked to him and respected him. None of you are kings. You don't have a nation following you. But has God made your life, your lot in life, pleasant? Maybe you tend to look at unpleasant things that happen. Maybe you focus too much on those. Sometimes we need a refocus. Again, uh, that, that time in Haiti, that week in Haiti was a time of refocusing for me. I was constantly reminded all week long that my lot includes running water and electricity and indoor plumbing and air conditioning. That's a pleasant thing. My lot is very pleasant and there are millions who don't have such things. God has made our lot pleasant, beloved. I don't miss many meals unless I'm fasting about something. I enjoy my air conditioning. Those are gracious gifts that God gives us to make our lives pleasant. God has drawn our line in pleasant places. Who arranged that for you? The one in whom you trust, the one who is your portion, the one who makes your cup run over, the one who determined those lines. Maybe you're thinking, sometimes we think, David says it's pleasant, but it's not always pleasant for me. Well, that might be true. I know many of you have struggled with major challenges in your life, difficult situations. For some of you, the struggle continues. It's hard every day. Pleasant may not mean that everything is as we would like it, but it could be a lot worse. Are we learning contentment with our lot in life? No matter the situation, no matter what might be unpleasant at this particular time, are we learning contentment depending on God to be our daily protector and our provider? Trusting in him means learning contentment with our lot in life. 
Thirdly, David knows that with the Lord as his portion, the lines that are drawn for him include a good inheritance permanently. So do we. We have a land to look forward to. We have a city to look forward to. A home prepared for us with the Lord as our inheritance. Again, we're reminded of Aaron who was told that the land wouldn't be his inheritance. The Lord is his portion. When we get there in that land, the Lord will be our portion. He will be the one we will see and enjoy and worship. We have no inheritance in this land. You can say you own your property, but you have no inheritance here. We have a home waiting for us permanently. David's going to come back to that a little bit later in the psalm. Verse 7 there, David thinks of things that he has mentioned. And as he thinks of those things, he is overwhelmed with thanksgiving. So he blesses the Lord for his many benefits. We do that too when we read Psalm 103. Say that with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all his benefits, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Multiple benefits that great God has showered upon us. We praise him for those benefits. We don't take pride in them. We bless our God as David did here with great thanksgiving. So trusting him means that we bless God with thanksgiving. We praise him with thanksgiving. David expresses that one of the benefits that he receives from God is the Lord's counsel. As king, David would need a lot of counsel, wouldn't he? His decisions affected a lot of people. Maybe your decisions don't affect very many people, maybe not more than your family, but they're still important. We need the Lord's counsel every day. We need his wisdom. Remember James said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We just got through hearing about that a few weeks ago. We need that every day. God will give that wisdom to us. So trusting in him, means asking for and receiving his counsel. He gives that to us. How does he counsel us? Through his word. We have his word to read every day. And his word tells us how we should see issues that arise in our family, in our personal lives, in our nation, how we should view those things. His word gives us counsel about those things. David says his heart, his inmost being instructs him. It can if it's been changed. Our hearts can also lead us astray. The Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful and we know that to be true. That's why our hearts have to be changed. They have to be changed by God and then tuned to his word to seek and meditate on his counsel every day. David's heart can instruct him because his heart's been changed. He has a new heart. In knowing his God, he sets the Lord always before him as his counselor. The Lord is at his right hand, he says. He recognizes he needs that Lord every single day. He reminds himself and us that the Lord is always there. And David is mindful to set the Lord before him. 
you do that every day. Set the Lord before you and look for his counsel. David's commitment is to the Lord and the Lord does not disappoint. Up to this point in the psalm, David seems to be thinking mostly about his current life and what the Lord does for him and that his cup runs over. He has abundant blessing. All that means to him. He's reaped many, many benefits. But now he seems to turn his attention finally to that third element of his preservation, his future. God's benefits are not only for this life on this earth, but they're for eternity. They last far beyond our earthly existence. Remember the song says, this world is not our home. David's heart's rejoicing in the Lord and he says that even his flesh will rest in hope. It will dwell secure. He knows that God will not abandon his body to Sheol, the abode of the dead. His statement is very much like Job's statement. Remember, Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I shall see God. Trusting in God means you are assured of having a permanent home with him in your body, in your flesh. David says the same. David believed in the resurrection of the body. Not just his soul would be brought from the abode of the dead, but his flesh would rest in hope as well. His body and soul have been redeemed. We don't know David's circumstances when he wrote this psalm. He may have been in danger. He may have been thinking that God will preserve his life and not allow him to come to the grave. He may be looking at his deliverance from whatever current situation is. But at a much deeper level, David knows that he, that God will not leave his soul in the pit, nor his body that is in the grave. If his body perishes, death cannot take away the fellowship that David has with his God. In fact, it only, death only draws us into closer fellowship as we just step out of this world into eternity to see our God face to face. That's only possible through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. If you're here not believing the gospel yet, believe the gospel today that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. Trust in him alone as your savior. Both Peter and Paul recognized Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm, of Psalm 16. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached that wonderful sermon that we read, he quoted David from this psalm in speaking of Jesus. David knew that God had promised that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and that death would be conquered. Did David always understand everything that he wrote about? 
you might remember that Peter says elsewhere that the prophets that prophesied about the grace of God that was to be ours uh, searched and inquired diligently, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ that was in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Maybe they didn't always fully understand everything. But Peter says in Acts 2 that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David surely had confident hope that God would not abandon him in the grave. His flesh would rest in hope. God had taken care of him throughout his life and would not abandon him in the death. So trusting in God means a confident assurance of his resurrection. Do you have that same hope in Christ? Hoping in Christ is not wishful thinking, as we often use the word hope. Hoping in Christ is a confident assurance that he will keep his promise, that he will lose none that the Father has given him. In Acts, Peter was pointing his hearers on the day of Pentecost to the resurrection of Christ that had just taken place. He wanted them to see that their great king, King David, believed that the great king to come, Jesus Christ, would not be abandoned to the grave or see corruption or decay. Paul did the very same thing in Acts 13 Paul quotes Psalm 16 in pointing out that even death could not hold the Lord Jesus. Paul stated that David died and was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead saw no corruption. He saw no decay. He will never see decay. He is alive in heaven today. The grave could not hold Jesus. Neither can it hold anyone who places their trust in him. Place your full trust in Jesus Christ today and delight in what he has done for you. Trusting God means delighting in him for your joy every day, beloved. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he is your portion He is your cup. Drink from that cup every day. Delight in drinking from that cup. Pursue him every day because he assures us that in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Brett, come and pray for us.